Hello, welcome to The Lore You Know, a show where we talk with some amazing human beings who are folklorists, storytellers, and collectors as we discuss the history of inspiration behind and importance of recording and sharing regional tales. Today, I have Melissa Davies of the Ohio Folklore Podcast. Thank you so much for talking with me today. You're so welcome. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, I'm super stoked. So um, I was really geeking out on the way here as I was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was listening to, well, on the drive here, I was able to get through a couple of your podcasts, actually, and um, just got really inspired by a few of them for sure. And the last one I listened to was the Moonville Tunnel episode. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. Have, and you've been there, right? I have. Yeah. My husband and I took a trip there this past August. Um, and we were so lucky. We were the only souls there the whole really? time. Yeah. It's, it's a really, um, it's such a deep quiet mm-hmm. and you're in such a lush forest that you're, um, you don't realize is still part of Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would, I can see why people have what they consider to be spiritual experiences there. It's, it's very unique. Yeah. Highly recommended. Yeah. Incredible history. Did you find the cemetery there too? Um, so we uh, didn't have time to do the cemetery. We were on a tour of uh, different locations. Okay. Uh, So, um, and I understand it's a little bit of a walk from Mm -hmm. the tunnel itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I hope to go back someday, you know, when I have, more time just to dedicate, you know, to that. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was a really fun uh, topic to research as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Lots of deep history. Yeah. Easy yeah. to find stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so what got you started on looking into Ohio folklore? You know, it was kind of one of those things that just came to me one day. I have always been intrigued by stories of the unexplained. Mm-hmm. Um, since I was a little kid yeah, and, um, I love podcasts. Yeah. I, I was one of the people that listened to podcasts when they were like, people were like, what is a podcast? You know, people <laughs> didn't understand it. um, so I kind of just combined those two passions for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really organic. I can't explain, you know, I was just one day I woke up, I'm like, I should do a podcast about local folklore. Yeah. Uh, and I've been doing it ever since. What was yeah, one of the so. first, what was one of the first stories that you heard growing up that got your attention? Oh gosh. You know, there's so many stories, um, that I've heard. I'm trying to remember, um, you mean like when I was a child? Yeah. That like first sparked your interest. Well, I know, you know, one of the things that's coming to my mind, uh, at the moment is when I was a teenager, actually, I went to Kenyon college in Gambier. And I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I went to a, it's sort of like a summer camp called teen Institute. Mm-hmm. I think they still have it, but they moved it to Heidelberg. But anyway, <laughs> um, so we were, I was there with a, a few hundred other high school students and, um, their bookstore on their main street sells haunted Ohio, which is the quintessential, Ohio uh, uh, book authored by Chris Woodyard. Yes. Of course. 
And it contained a, a segment in there on Kenyon College, which is where we were, all of the, the ghosts that inhabited, right? So somebody got a hold of this and the word of mouth spread across this uh, convention. Like you wouldn't believe people were terrified. <laughs> they didn't want to go into buildings because there was a ghost inside. Uh, people wanted to go home. I mean, it created this quite a frenzy to the point where they had to call an assembly of everybody just to kind of try to calm nerves. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, people were going nuts with this. I mean, some people were like, oh, that's cool. And other people are crying. <laughs> it's, it's just like... <laughs> Um, it really stuck with me and it had such a hold on uh, so many of our imaginations. Uh, yeah. So that's the one that really stands out for me. And there's there's a plethora of ghost stories attached to Kenyon. Yeah. Um, and I did I did a two-part series on Stuart Pearson, mm -hmm. which is the young man who was killed in a hazing in incident in 1905. Can you yeah. go into a little bit about that story? Oh, sure. I'd love to. It's still um, shrouded in controversy and uncertainty. Um, so Stuart Pearson was a young man about 18 years old, and his dad was a wealthy lumber mogul out of Cincinnati who was an alumni of Kenyon College in 1905. And so he encouraged Stuart, who was the second of his three sons, to go to school there. Uh, but Stuart was a really kind of shy, reserved, and you know, just not very extroverted kid. And he was having a hard time making friends. And he's like, you know, why don't you sign up for the Deeks? Uh, and they, they, their national chapter is still in existence, the Delta Kappa Epsilon, mm -hmm. but they, they're known as the Deeks. So he decided to pledge the Deeks. And on their night of their initiation, he was told to go down into the woods to a railroad trestle, really thin uh, bridge that spanned the Kokosing River. And you know the, the accounts of what he was told to do are disputed. Um, one was said that he was only supposed to sit at the bridge and wait. The other though, um, assumption is that he was told to go out into the center of the bridge in the middle, which was really dangerous uh, yeah. because of it train comes by, you won't have time to, to jump off or to run, to run off the side. So um, he went there with this basket of what he was told to collect, a section of rope and you know a piece of cloth. And he had all these kinds of things that he was supposed to bring with him. When the pledges that were coming to retrieve him uh, arrived, they found this basket sitting in the middle of the rails, undist undisturbed and no Stuart. Uh, so they were like calling his name. They were whistling like, where is this kid? And so they started walking the expanse and um, they lit a match. And one of the uh, alumni who was part of the group that was coming to retrieve him said, I think there's a dead cow on the rails up in front of us. You see that lump laying there? And they got closer, and then one of the other three was actually his roommate, noticed the shoes. He saw his legs and the shoes and the garters that were holding up his socks. Mm -hmm. And he's like, that's Stuart. Yeah. And so they, they lit another match because the, the first one they had burnt out, held it up to his body. He'd been de decapitated, totally mangled, 
it was his corpse. He'd been struck by a train. And just then, they heard a whistle in the distance. Another yeah. train was coming. Oh, no. So they had to really quickly lift up his body, run to the, the edge of the, the bridge. And of course, they get right there in the nick of time, um, according to historical newspaper articles, as right. this freight train comes barreling by. Um, so that's that's the kind of incident itself. And then there's, I could spend a long time going into great detail about the rest of the story, but to make it uh, short here, there was a cover up by the college around the details of what happened. Um, the father was there to celebrate the initiation night. He loaded the body up on a train, was able to call in a special train because they weren't supposed to go have trains on Sundays brought it back to Cincinnati. The coroner was not identified or not notified. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a lot of controversy. It catched uh, the, the imagination of people worldwide. It was in newspapers all over the country and Europe and other places. Uh, and there was this long drawn out trial of what actually happened and whether the college was condoning these kinds of dangerous hazing practices. Yeah, that stuff so is. I'm sorry, this stuff is still relevant today. It is. It really is. Um, you know, there are people, young people who die of hazing every day. Um, you know, and there was the case up in Bowling Green, not what, maybe a year ago. Mm -hmm. The young man, Stone Foltz, I think his name was, was an alcohol related death. You know, so these are issues that we've been dealing with for centuries, clearly. clearly. But um, the ghost story that uh, goes along with this if you go down to the rail bridge now, but it's been it's been uh, transformed into a um, what do they call that rail to trail where it's paved now for biking mm -hmm. and things. The bridge is still there. The iron framework is still there. Mm -hmm. That the rails have been pulled up, and so now it's used as a, a nature hiking trail. But the legend is that you can still see his um, his apparition laying there, as though he'd been tied to to the rails wow uh -huh. that's horrible so that <clears throat> his body was mangled but his basket mm -hmm. was untouched yes his basket doesn't make any sense to me <laughs> like it's yeah and and they had some people that were trying to do some forensics at least i mean it was in its infancy back then mm -hmm. but they would take a yeah, very similar basket and they would set it between the rails and they would watch a train go by and there was just enough clearance that it wouldn't disturb the basket oh wow you know that it wouldn't, yeah okay. um there was a lot of controversy over did he fall asleep on the rails mm -hmm. which i think is pretty ridiculous you're going to hear and feel a train coming and the whistle and everything but um when a coroner finally got to cincinnati to take a look at his uh, body and do a autopsy the claim was that there were uh, microscopic fibers of the rope on his wrists and ankles that were still there um, so that he hadn't just been told to go to the bridge but that somebody had actually tied him to the rails wow yeah that's yeah okay yeah <laughs> right uh um wow okay so what story from the college had everybody was there a particular one that got everybody into a frenzy when you were in high school and there like do you remember a specific one that caused everybody to start crying and freaking out 
So this is when, um, you know, I went to this teen institute, which, yeah. which is a summer camp. Yeah. So there's like uh, high school kids from all over Ohio yeah. that are there in the summer. Um, and so there's a lot of stories related to Kenyon College. There's the Gates of Hell, which is um, the stone gates that were like original to the school that uh, lead the main trail that goes uh, down the center of the campus. Um, you know, and there's there's the tale if, if you're there at a certain time and you say a certain uh, prayer, you know, that you're going to see the devil. When you go into the church, this is what freaked me out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, if you go into the really old chapel that they have there on campus. Um, and if you walk, when you walk in there, it's really heavily insulated. Mm -hmm. So you feel this sense of like, it feels like a crypt you know, where it's that heavy silence for, and it's, it's encased in that, um, woodwork all up and down the ceilings. Um, it's, it's just a very creepy feeling and heavy carpeted floors. So even when you walk, you can't hear your own footsteps. And when you walk up towards the front, there's the stained glass windows, like you would imagine seeing in most old churches with, uh, pictures of saints and, and what have you. And I think it's St. Peter, he has thorns um, coming out of his head, mm. which is really weird. And so yeah. one of the things that was really freaking the kids out is, you know, there was this, this rumor that, you know, the devil had cursed the church. And, you know, if you had the guts to go inside the church and walk up to the stained glass window, you would see that he had changed the, the image of St. Peter to, to be a demon. Oh, by wow. putting thorns on his head yeah and um so i was one of the people that <laughs> decided oh, i'm gonna go check this out and it is i mean it's one of those things you get the hair on the back of your neck like why why would there be thorns on why would an artist put a saint with thorns on his head in right. this window yeah right. so it was it was those kinds of things that was really getting kids freaked out wanting to go home and I, you know, I don't want to be possessed <laughs> by the devil and <laughs> all these things. <laughs> That's great. <Yeah. laughs> mm -hmm. So <clears throat> are there other folk tales around where you, where you grew up that caught your attention as well? Yeah. Uh, well, one of the first episode I actually did for the podcast is called Gertie's Island. Mm -hmm. And I live in Napoleon, Ohio now, which is in the Northwest corner. And um, the Maumee River is the largest river that empties into Lake Erie. And so we're about 40 miles west of Toledo here on the Maumee. And right in the center of the Maumee, not too far from Napoleon, is Gertie's Island. You know, so it's a piece of land that's in the center of the river that um, the folklore is that you can see these spectral lights from the banks. Even in the dead of winter, when you know that there's no one hunting or camping on the island um, that they um, represent the the ghost of Simon Gurdy and he was a historical figure in the war of 1812 and the revolutionary war era he was a a white man of Irish descent an immigrant his parents had come from Ireland but he and his brothers had been uh, abducted by native forces in a conflict and were actually, he was raised by members of the Shawnee tribe. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of this is actually a historical fact, right? So you can right. look it up and you can find documents.
myths that back it up. So that's what I love about folklore is often, you know, you get these fantastic claims of these weird things happening in certain places. And when you start to research just a little bit under the surface, you find these really captivating historical tales that are just as intriguing, you know, as, as fantastic claims themselves. Yeah. yeah. But I interviewed some folks um, who had ghostly experiences with the island and and all of that combine that with the, the the story from history. Yeah. When you've gone out exploring some of these places, have you ever had anything odd happen? So I've had some unusual experiences that hasn't been so far related to um, Ohio, although I mm. hope to someday have something along those lines. I did go to visit uh, Eastern State Penitentiary in <sighs> Philadelphia. Mm, I yeah. haven't been there yet, but I really want to go. It is such an amazing place. It's it's got that kind of eerie decay where it's just this beautiful um, state of you know paint chipped walls and a musty smell and yeah. of course it's you know some of it's been around since the 1700s so the architecture is really neat. I mean even if you just like going for those purposes, I would recommend it. Mm -hmm. But uh, so my husband and I were taking the self guided audio tour, mm -hmm. and so we're just one we're just roaming around looking at what's available and what's around us with um I think it was Steve Buscemi as the actor who narrates their tour oh wow okay <laughs> got his voice playing in my ears and I, I remember going to the central hub because um their main building it's sort of, sort of like a bicycle wheel with the spokes that come out from the center mm. so they could have guards that would be in this central area but they could look all the way down these massive cell blocks at any point. So it's a neat place just to hang out and kind of see a good portion of the inside of the structure. Yeah. And so I remember I was just standing there, chiming in my ear, telling all the history of what, what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. And unexpectedly, I saw two legs, no rest of the body. It was kind of like waist down, it's an amber, semi transparent. Uh, walking straight out of a cell across the corridor and, and as it continued across as though it was going into the cell on the directly the opposite side slowly just dissipated and it, just as soon as I recognized something was happening and was like wait a minute what is that it that's right as when it evaporated right so it went so quickly but it was still very clear in my mind I'm like what am I seeing yeah yeah, I knew I had, it was in the morning, I hadn't been drinking, you know, I had to be some, some kind of explanation for that. And of course they have a huge display on the way out after you go through all the exhibit um, that says, has a summary of the many ghost sightings that both volunteers and, and guests have had. Yeah. What, what I experienced was pretty similar to a lot of what they had described. That's wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's one of those places that, I mean, I'm in love with Mansfield reformatory. So oh, yeah, I've been there a few times. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that's a place that draws so many people from all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And they really embrace their reputation. I know yeah. some places feel um, less supportive of that or afraid that it's going to like shy people away from visiting them and, you know, <laughs> yeah, I feel but, like it brings more in. 
they I think more often than not, especially this day, these days with how popular things are um, like that, people are more uh, embracing of the unknown kinds of things along those lines. And they want an opportunity to explore for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. So when you start doing research for your episodes, like, first of all, what, <clears throat> how do you choose what your next episode is going to be? And when you do start into the episode, what is your standard process for gathering all of the information? Because your episodes are really unique in that they, you tell the story and then you're interviewing someone, um, sometimes throwing in some music from local mm-hmm. artists. Um, and it's, I mean, it's just, there's multiple steps to your, your show. And so I'm wondering how that all comes about. Yeah. Um, it's something I've just kind of honed over the about three years now that I've been doing it. Um, so it's, it's really interesting how I pick the topics. It, it does sort of vary. That piece of the puzzle does vary from time to time. Usually I'm just looking for something that grips me. So if I come across a story that I know that's local to Ohio, and I'm like, that is just weird. <laughs> what the heck is that about? You know, if I'm intrigued by it, I think there's a good chance that listeners will be as well. So that's that's a good kind of guide. Um, at this point, though, now I also get a lot of leads from listeners that will reach out to me. I'm like, hey, next to me in the town where I live, there's this really creepy building and I don't know, but you know, I saw this woman staring out of a window, you know, or something like that. Yeah. So that's really neat. It's sort of an organic way that, you know, stories come to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are kinds of the two basic approaches that I take for choosing the topics. And what I like to do with the process of research is I dive deep, heavy into historical newspaper articles. Mm-hmm. I think they provide a really great, um, look into how the story develops over time because usually there's some historical event that's pretty easy to find in the newspapers Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's something that is investigated you know over time whether it's an unsolved murder or you know some unusual kind of death that happens so I get to learn um, the folklore as it kind of from the grassroots as people are just saying hey I think this happened over in this location and then we can kind of see the progression as the years go by and then people kind of put more of the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, but I also look really hard to find somebody that is local to the place and has a personal connection and experience because that gives a lot more depth to the story um, than what I can provide just by, you know, looking at, you know, newspaper articles. There's a limit to really understanding the um, experience of a place. Mm-hmm. So I try to combine all all of those elements when I, when I can to make for a good story. Yeah. Well, it adds a lot of depth to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And um, a little more legitimacy too. I think uh, when you have somebody who's like, I've been born and raised here and you know, here's my experiences of this location and here's my cousin and my aunt and whatever, and here's what (laughs) happened to them. You know, that's, that's that kind of colloquial, uh, sort of stuff that that adds a lot more to the story. Mm-hmm. I also enjoy how with certain aspects of the stories, you'll go into detail to help explain it a little better because it's something we're not necessarily familiar with today. So, for example, when you're talking about the Moonville Tunnel and the mm-hmm. accidents that occurred there, you talk about the line brakeman 
with, and how that evolved over time so that it's more understandable as to why there would have been so many brakemen dying <laughs> on the job. Um, um, yeah, uh, totally. Um, I'd like to try to find those angles that illuminate some new parts to the story. Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of these uh, stories, especially the ones that have been covered a lot, like Moonville Tunnel, yeah. uh, I want to try to avoid just regurgitating a, a combination of things that a lot of people have already said or explained about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where the history buff in me really enjoys finding out things that I didn't know before. Uh, yeah. Like like you said, the linemen, and there was actually a guy that would stand on top of the train and when it was time to break, he would have to like turn this wheel in between the cars. And of course, it was just really dangerous because a lot of men died doing that. Uh, yeah. And it was really common for them to drink whiskey because it helped them feel Hold warm. Down. They wouldn't actually be warm. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's just like, <laughs> what are people thinking? Uh, yeah, I guess the warmth. I was just thinking the nerves. It would help calm the nerves maybe. Of maybe that being on a train and then having to go through like uh, tunnels and certainly they'd have to duck down. I mean, yeah. Right. And there weren't any signals on the tracks. So you were trusting the dispatcher who had the routes and the times all correct that you weren't heading right into a head on collision with another train. Right. And that uh, didn't always work. It didn't always work because there were mistakes. People make mistakes. Um, and some of the accidents there at Moonville Tunnel, especially the the one that's referenced in the the Moonville Brakeman song, the Bluegrass Ditty that I mm -hmm. included there. Yeah, yeah um, that was due to a, a train collision. Yeah, which mm -hmm. was it was so common in those days. Uh, the safety record for trains was abysmal uh, back in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, and that's mm -hmm. one that led to what I guess you would consider like a spook light at this point in time, right? Or Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, people see this hovering light, but they do note often it's that distinctive sway. Like if somebody's walking and they, they have a light in their hands and you can see the arc of it. Mm -hmm. The strange things. And they have a festival there now in October uh, that draws a lot of people really um, you know one of the, what's the, the halloween celebrations that they what's have the there. festival called yeah i think it's moonlight at mundo i think it's moonlight at mundo if i remember right mm -hmm. i think they had to cancel it the last couple of years because of covid wow. but yeah you know hopefully they'll get back to it with any luck mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you get yeah. messages from listeners now about different topics and stuff what's one of the stories that was sent to you that was just it was something that you'd never heard of and really caught your attention you just had to dive into it right away yeah so um this is the uh legend of the faceless hitchhiker which is in claremont County. yeah so i was contacted <laughs> by a person just really passionate it's like oh my gosh i had this experience at the uh, intersection of 222 and 125 these are two highways state highways that cross in Claremont County, which is uh, the county just east of Cincinnati down there. Um, I saw this person in this trench coat with these gloves with the fingers cut out and it's kind of shimmery surface along the side of the road. Mm -hmm. Middle of the night, I was driving home from a party with my friend. 
um, you know, pretty classic story. Um, and so I started researching it and there are lots and lots of claims of people with very similar experiences seeing a man in a trench coat with the gloves with the fingers cut out and his face is always either vacuous yeah. or he's, he's looking down at the ground so you can just see the top of his head you can never see his face mm -hmm. so um i did a great deal of research on this not just collecting the ghostly claims but also the the history and found a really traumatic accident that happened right at this location in the 60s which was when these sightings started happening mm -hmm. um, got into some details about these young men who had just graduated high school and uh, you know different aspects of their lives and went into detail explaining uh, the accident itself and what happened. So I released that episode and it, at the time it was, um, I don't know, it was, I think it was the first year that I'd done the podcast. It was the strongest response I've ever gotten. People were just gaga over this story <laughs> and a lot of people are like oh my gosh i had this experience here and here's what happened to me and, and that sort of thing but not much after i released the episode i was contacted by a retired state trooper who had been assigned to the batavia post which is in claremont county and he shared with me some experiences that were just you know they, they still kind of made my heart stop a little bit when hearing yeah. You know, because he's not a ghost hunter. He's not somebody that was out there looking for this thing to appear. But he, on his patrols, would go through this intersection many times. And he had seen it on three separate occasions. This is the exact same image, the exact same clothing, the exact same position. He would actually, this figure would stand in this kind of unnatural position with his arms out, head down. You know that sort of thing the last time he'd seen him he was in the process of making an arrest at a dui with a motorist and the thing appears in the distance and he can see it in the distance but of course he's got this drunk person in front of him that he's trying to take care of and manage and so he shared i did a second episode on that with yeah. just interviewing yeah um yeah so that that was that was a really thrilling kind of experience for me because that just came out of, you know, a listener who's like, Hey, can you research this? The retired police officer contacted you and told you the stories of him seeing it three separate times. Yeah. I think it was actually to be just to be totally accurate, his ex-mother-in-law. So um, he had been divorced. So the mother of mm -hmm. his ex-wife heard my podcast and was like, Oh my God, I got to get this story to my ex son-in-law and so she made the help us make the connection um, awesome. and, and he was you could tell in the way that he tells the story that he still still grips him when he talks mm -hmm. about it kind of his his breath quickens and he's like he was so weirded out by this he didn't know what it was when he right. first saw it but he knew something was weird um and then he reached out to other people in the community and was asking is there is there somebody that like roams around this intersection and they're like oh my god you saw the faceless hitchhiker he's like what are you talking about like that's how it all kind of came together have you ever had somebody contact you after these stories like after you like in this instance obviously the mother-in-law contacted you and and she knew of his story but have you had like an officer or somebody contact you that was there when the initial like accident happened or whatever the incident may have been? Um, 
Not off the top of my head um, in terms of like the actual death or the accident or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, like I know this isn't exactly related to your question, but, you know, I'm thinking of the episode I did on the Mothman. Um, yeah. So I did interview uh, a man who was eight years old when that happened. And he could remember going across the bridge before it fell with his parents and was so unsettled because you could feel it really rise and fall. There was so much give that you would never feel going over another bridge. Um, and he would always really plead with his parents not to use it, but they had to because, you know, they had to work on the other side, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, I've had some experiences like that where people um, are like, I knew this was going to happen. It's a matter of time. Um, yeah. Yeah. That. And a lot of the other things that I research are like 1905 or, you know, that's true. So there's nobody around anymore that would have been there, you know, at the moment. Yeah. The yeah. accident in the sixties is what made me think of that when you were saying for the, the faceless hitchhiker. And, and I try to be discreet to especially if it's more recent and there are people uh family members survivors you know that i, I want to be careful not to um sensationalize their loss uh you know and that sort of thing so sometimes i almost prefer the more distant past uh, yeah. because it's a little easier to distill it at that point yeah so i often kind of shy away from the more recent like true crime sort of things. I know that there's a lot of podcasts and other people that cover those things and they do it well and it's really popular, but that's just not, not my cup of tea. Yeah. It's too fresh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I understand right. that. <clears throat> What's the mm -hmm. oldest piece of folklore that you've covered on your podcast? Uh, Serpent Mount in uh, Adams County in Ohio there. Yeah. I don't know if you've been there, if you're familiar. I not. I'm familiar with oh, it. Gosh. I have not been there though. It's, it's a really mystical place. These uh, mounds that were built by uh, folks that we're still kind of learning about because it's way, way before the Woodland Native Americans. So like Hopewell culture is what we call them. Mm -hmm. So centuries and centuries old. And we still don't understand, you know, this mound that's built in the shape of a serpent. Looks like it's about to devour an egg is what they think it is. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a center of mystic uncertainty for a long, long time, even for our settlers and the Native Americans who were here, weren't sure what it was either, but they did a lot of their rituals there and then, you know, yeah, so that's, that's by far got to be the oldest one that I've yeah. covered. Yeah, that's one that we even learn about in school here. I mean, that's something that yes. we cover early on. Oh, yeah. And it's so great that it's, you know, public space. So you can go there and, and see it for yourself and climb this really rickety platform and see that the whole thing there in front of you. Yeah. And they do a lot of uh, programming like on the solstice and, you know, very spiritual kinds of um, celebrations. I didn't realize that. But that makes sense. Yeah, well, it points, um, you know, the head points directly at the, I believe, the summer solstice, and then the tail mm. is at the winter, if I remember. I'll have to double check that, but 
you know, so it's along the, the, the astronomical layout. Um, yeah. yeah. And we still don't know for sure what it means, why they built it, you know, that sort of stuff. It's just such a mystery. Yeah. <clears throat> when you were younger, did you have anyone in your family that would tell you stories, whether it was familial stories or folklore of the area or anything like that? Like, is, did you inherit this trait of wanting to retell stories and record them? Well, you know, I was always one of those kids that begged for uh, bedtime stories. Yep. And, me too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I remember uh, my dad being creative and coming up with these crazy plot lines and, you know, different things like that. I don't know that it was much different than a lot of other families. I think that stories are, are such a um, important way that we pass down, not just our history, but our values and our morals and, you know, all of that kind of stuff that go along with it. So, um, you know, and I happen to be a psychologist. And so I listen to people's stories all day, um, yeah. which is really what therapy is about. Sometimes our story, <laughs> sometimes our stories are about these crazy things in the past and our cultural heritage. And sometimes they're just about, you know, who am I as a person and what narrative am I making up about my character you know so sometimes we you know if we author our own stories and are able to um, see the power we have in writing our own story that that can be a healing thing not just for the individual like in a therapy situation but i think in a way that's a lot of what folklore is what history is um, which is just kind of finding meaning in our experience yeah that kind of thing. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> so, <Thanks>. yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so at the end of my episodes, I ask people to tell me a story. Mm-hmm. So I would like to know a tale from Ohio that is one of the most intriguing stories that you've covered. Oh, wow. Um, I have to think about this one because it's, it's sort of like picking your favorite child. You're never supposed to do that. Yeah. You're not supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's so many to pick from. I guess um, the one that comes to mind for me now, uh, it comes from my home County of Putnam County in Ohio, mm-hmm. which is also in Northwest Ohio. It's a very, very rural County. So very small towns. I'm talking like, one street, one stoplight towns, you know, that make up this. Yeah. So um, I did this research on the supposed haunted cemetery. It was a cholera cemetery. Mm -hmm. So this is the COVID of the mid 1800s, basically, that would come through and just decimate entire villages. Um, And they didn't know how it spread. There would be so many deaths that they would have to uh, do mass graves and they were afraid of catching it. So they would bury people literally within hours of dying because they thought they thought they were getting they were getting it from the corpse, that they were getting mm-hmm. sick by being around or near the corpse. We know now that it's uh, passed through usually food and water. Um, so anyway, I I went into depth in researching this cemetery, which people hear these sounds of children laughing, children crying. And the rumor had always been, you know, cholera swept through 
this village of Gilboa in Putnam County. And so they had to create this cemetery really quickly and bury a bunch of kids. Um, and so that's the reason why late at night, ghost hunters and, and others would be out there and hear these unexplained sounds and disembodied voices and all of that kind of thing. So um, I had a good time, like I do with most of my topics, doing the historical research, connecting with some local people, going to the site and all of that. And I happened to uncover this story in the newspapers about a Hungarian doctor who had been exiled to the US. So there had been a, a Hungarian revolution trying to free themselves from the Austrians in the uh, early 1800s. And he was the member, uh, a medic on the field and they had been captured in a battle by the Austrians. They, they lost their attempt at uh, achieving their own freedom. And they had to choose either they were going to be executed or they could be exiled you know, to another country. So wow. yeah, this doctor, Dr. Gustavus Thate was his name, chose to be exiled. He was sent to the US and ended up in Putnam County in Gilboa um, and was one of a few physicians there in town and was um, lived with a, a family, a local family. And um, he was one of the few doctors that remains there in town when cholera struck the, the village. And he stayed and there were newspaper articles written after the epidemic passed through about his valiant efforts to, to save the people who couldn't afford to leave, right? So these are people yeah. that were sick, didn't have a horse, didn't have transportation, and they were stuck, kind of sitting ducks, really. Yeah. Um, and he, he eventually did contract cholera and he died from it and was buried in a cemetery there in Gilboa. So um, I am also passionate about genealogy. I did a lot of research on him found his gravestone it was broken you couldn't even read his name the first the, the top half of it had been missing so i did a gofundme um, effort to raise the funds to uh, establish a new tombstone had a bronze plaque that put a summary of his story and his sacrifice uh, for having saved unknown numbers of people you know poor and disabled folks there in Gaboa. And so we erected a new tombstone in his honor there in the cemetery. Wow. Thanks yeah. for doing that. That's amazing. Yeah. It really had such relevance for us today. And we think about all of the uh, efforts that healthcare workers have been doing through COVID all these couple of years and how they put themselves on the front lines. Um, and we think that this is all new and relevant to what we're dealing with today. But this has happened centuries over and over every time there's an epidemic. You know, it's the yeah. healthcare workers that are really on the front lines. And without them, you know, we'd probably all be at risk. Uh, so it really it rang true. When did you do that? Okay, that would have been last spring. Um, so spring of 21, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then and that was another thing. Um, I got some press in the local newspaper a woman who, I believe she's 92, if I remember right, she'd been born and raised in Gilboa and had heard the stories from her parents about Dr. Fate and the sacrifice that he made. And so she was really passionate about this project of having a restored tombstone with the story on it. And so she donated the lion's share of the cost 
for the wow tombstone to be put up. Yeah, she was actually very insistent about it, which was cute. Yeah. Yeah. That's made my day. Has it? Yeah. Well, that's so nice of you to say. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's one of my more popular episodes there too, which mm -hmm. I was glad to see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know a oh. lot of times. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm listening. A lot of times, you know, people, when we're putting these stories together, we're always focused on, you know, how do we make this creepy and spooky and, and so surprising and all of that, which that has its place. And I love that too. Uh, but I, I think a lot of times what we'll find are um, even more meaningful parts to the story. And, you know, whether you believe in ghosts or you don't, uh, I happen to myself, but I understand there's a lot of skepticism out there. Um, I, sometimes I think there's a spiritual element to why these stories stick around and, you know, why, why they capture our imaginations. And so if we're just patient enough to, to really sit with it and do the research, you find these kinds of stories that are just like, oh my God, I can't believe nobody's written about this or published this before. Yeah. So that's one of the favorite parts to this whole process for me is discovering those things and then being able to share it with other people and then to see their genuine enthusiasm for it is, is really cool. Yeah. Have you written these stories down? Have I written them down? Yeah. Oh, I do have them written down. So um, when I produce an episode, I have a whole story written and then I include, you know, the interviews and interspersed with that. Yeah, I do have it uh, transcribed basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> well, where can our viewers or listeners find you? Yeah, so uh, the website is ohiofolklore.com. And there you can find uh, lots of photos and other kinds of things that go along with the stories that I publish. Uh, right on the homepage, you can listen to the episodes themselves, or you can go to all the podcast platforms, Apple and Spotify and what have you. And it's, it's easy to find if you just search for Ohio Folklore. And there's a Facebook page, of course, too. If you search for Ohio Folklore, you'll find us there. Oh, well, thank you so much for talking with me today. And I'm so glad I got to um, to share the stories. Absolutely. Uh, well, if you guys uh, want to comment below, like, subscribe, share. Um, you can email me, Heather, at smalltownmonsters.com. And um, I guess until next time.